Friends, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love to gather with each other and in the smiles and virtual hugs and laughter and twinkle in the eyes of our friends, we experience something of your love. We experience your presence with us, maybe not in ways that we feel, but ways that we know are true, especially as we open ourselves to your truth, your word, the words of scripture, words that came from other faithful folks, words that come from you. We experience you as we eat good food, as we gather in a place that's warm and dry and safe. We experience you especially in ways that you choose. So please come and be with us to give to us what we need today in the way that we need it today, not just for the sake of our comfort and peace and joy, but so that we can share all of that with others, with a world that badly needs to know you. We pray those things as we open ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're continuing to look at the big uh, names, titles, images, descriptions of Jesus. When you say the word Jesus, you're saying a whole lot. You can never say everything that you need to say about Jesus, but it's a good thing to try. And the older you get, the more you should know. So some of you should be experts these days in Jesus, right? <laughs> we'll read a few passages. The word that we're focusing on is the word word. So there's a lot to say about the word word, even though we can't say it all. Let's look first at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You've heard some of this language before. Good. Let me give you a little contextual setting here so we're all on the same page in that regard, and then I want to hear what your thoughts are. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth in the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible, first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of Scripture in some sense that Jesus would have had available to him, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These first five books tell us the story about essentially the establishment of all of creation, pretty important stuff. And then particularly the establishment of the people or the nation of Israel. The rest of the story of the Old Testament tells us the story of Israel. In Deuteronomy, essentially what we have is the speech or speeches or messages that God gave to Moses to give to the people as they are preparing to go into the Holy Land quick review of history. God creates everything. At some point, God comes to Abraham, says, I got big plans for you. Abraham starts to have a big family. Eventually, that family ends up enslaved in Egypt for several hundred years. They are rescued by Moses uh, and Aaron, and they wander around in the wilderness for a long time. And then they come to the plain of Moab. Anybody here been to Moab? Not Utah. It, it's pretty plain there, too. It's gorgeous, but it's pretty plain, right? If you picture your maps of Israel, or some of you have been there, also Jordan, you've got Tel Aviv, where you land on the airplane, and they put you in quarantine now for 14 days, apparently. Then you've got Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, you go to the east, and you go down into the Jordan River Valley. You pass the city of Jericho, 
and then you start coming back up out of the Jordan Valley into the nation of Jordan now, and you go into the plain of Moab. That's where the Israelite people, after wandering around in the desert for a while, are encamped as they get ready to go down the valley, across the river, and up into the Holy Land. Moses, you remember, does not get to go with the people. The leadership is going to be turned over Josh to Joshua. Moses is old. Moses is going to die. Moses has some things he wants to say to Israel, to the people before they go into the promised land. And that's part of what we have. That's what we have here. We have a little piece of that today. All of this happens around the year 1250 before Jesus. Okay? 1250. Most of us were not here then. So that's the conversation. Everybody got that kind of straight in your head? Okay. So what does Moses say to the people? And when I say Moses, this is God speaking to the people. This is Moses speaking to the people. It it kind of weaves back and forth. What does Moses say? What are some of the the words and the images that pop up out of this for you? Ah, be careful because they have a history of backsliding, okay? Let's talk about that history for just a second, okay? Forty years earlier, and we don't know if it's exactly 40 years, the, the... When you said something lasted for 40 years or 40 days and 40 nights, you meant a long time, okay? A long time ago, when the people first come out of Egypt, they camp at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to the top of the, of the mountain, and uh, according to the, uh, the scriptures, according to Monty Python, Moses comes down carrying three tablets of stone, each with five commandments on them. He drops one, so then it goes down to ten, right? While Moses is up on the mountain, the people have decided that this God who's led them out of Egypt isn't there with them anymore, so they make their own golden calf. It doesn't take them, but just just a little bit of time to forget, to renege, to go away from God. And Moses remembers that, and the people need to remember that. Okay, good word. What else do you see in this? Remember. Remember. That's one of the longer words in the Bible that's really important. Remember, I, I make the case always that words like but and and are really important in Scripture. Remember is a really, really good word. In the Greek way of thinking, remembering is not just about recalling some fact uh, or event or experience or sound or smell or something from the past, right? When we think of remembering, remembering is actually a much bigger deal, especially when it comes to faith, when it comes to religion. Take the word apart. When you re remember something. You put it back together. You call it to life again. Think of the members of your body, right? We don't often talk this way anymore, but you've got different pieces of your body, right? When you dismember something, you pull it apart. It doesn't work anymore. When you remember something, you put it back together. Remembering is putting back together the experience or experience says, that the people have had with God so that they can continue their experience with God. In a sense, the only thing that we do here is talk about what used to be. We talk about what used to be because what used to be still is and will be. And we need to remember what used to be so that, we know, so that we can know what is now and what will be coming in the future. Remembering is a sacred, holy, powerful act, a very powerful act. Remember. Good. What else do you see in this? That's it? Okay. Let's eat. And No. <laughs> right? This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe. What is the commandment? You think of the Ten Commandments, right? From out of the Ten Commandments grow an entire relationship. A commandment is not just, you shall do this or you shall not do that. When you hear the commandment in in the Old Testament... What we're talking about is the the whole way of life, the whole mindset, the worldview, the approach to life. 
that is taught and encouraged and, and brought about in the life of the people in their relationship with God. This entire commandment. Everything that God has been teaching the people, they are meant to remember. Why are they supposed to remember it? The answer is right there. So they can do it. And in the... Yeah, if you don't remember, you know, oh, gee, I forgot that I was supposed to follow the speed limit. Um, I forgot that I was supposed to get eggs and milk on the way home. <laughs> that will get you in serious trouble, by the way. <laughs> right? Remember it so that you can do it. You do it. Why? So that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that you're moving into. Let me restate that a little bit, right? Did they know, did the people know they were going to have to wander around for 40 years, right? The ambiguity of that, the uncertainty of that would, would drive you crazy. It did. It did. They didn't even have to be out there 40 years, just a few weeks maybe, before, you know, while Moses on, on Sinai. And they're already driven crazy, right? God led the people via the agency of Moses out. And they wandered around for a long time. What's that about? There we go. A good possibility. They didn't obey God to begin with, right? Had they obeyed God to begin with, right? Had they stood in line like they were supposed to or whatever it is, maybe they would have gotten in a lot sooner. The, the Bible actually struggles with that issue and that question in some sense, right? What we are given to understand after the fact is that God leads the people around for a long time because they have been unfaithful to Him. They, they, they gave up on God immediately almost. After He had just rescued them from Egypt, they gave up on God immediately. So He said, oh, these folks need to be taught a lesson. Not in a punitive way, but need to be taught a lesson. And what we are told is essentially the entire generation of people who left Egypt died over that course of time that they were wandering around, and a new generation was raised up. That's one of the reasons it was so important for the new generation to remember the commandments and to remember their history. I remember that mom and dad used to tell me about making bricks in Egypt, but we escaped from Egypt by the hand of God and now God is taking us to a new place. The Bible takes, the story of the Bible takes a long time to unfold. Part of the story, though, is, is whether or not we trust God and God's promise to take us where we're eventually supposed to go. And it's important, it's, it's vital for us to remember our frustration, our impatience, our faithlessness in trusting God's eventual promise. That's important. But that's one of the reasons that Moses is talking about what he's talking about here. Remember what God has done for you. Look at the specific things that Moses says. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? In order to humble you and to test you. Humility. The older I get, the bigger I am on humility. The more people I know, the more I know about life, the more I understand that humility is one of the fundamental things that you and I need in order to successfully follow in the way of Jesus. Because following means you're not in charge, doesn't it? To say that someone else in charge requires at least pretending to be humble. Humble in the sense of, I live leave the decisions to you. I leave the, the wisdom to you. I let you dictate what's going to go on. That's what we do when we say we're going to follow Jesus. The people are following God around in the wilderness. God humbles the people. He tests the people, right? And then we have a specific way in which God tested the people. Verse 3, He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna. Okay? Helen and I were just having the conversation this morning. Maybe it's better to put it this way. Helen was having the conversation with me this morning. 
She's not here to defend herself. <laughs> About planting a vegetable garden. Right? Now, I don't think we're going to have food shortages because of the coronavirus, but who knows? Right? Let's feed ourselves. There's no way to plant a garden in the desert when you're wandering around. There's no water. There's no good soil. There's other people that will come and raid your crops if you do manage to grow something. That was one of the people's first issues, right? They got hungry as they wandered around. Remember, they said to, they said to Moses, we were better off eating at the flesh pots in Egypt. At least we had a little bit of food. We were slaves, but at least we had a little bit of food. Now we're out here in the wilderness, and we're hungry. And then do you remember what happened? Come on, go back to, to manna. Manna, yes. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Manna appears, this bread-like substance, okay, and the people are fed. God helped the people to see that they were dependent on Him for even their food and that He then fed them. That's what the story of the manna is about. It's not about the miracle that happens, okay? You can get hung up on that. The story is about we depend on God and God takes care of us. How many of you can actually make food That's not a question about your cooking abilities, right? Mothers do, because their children are dependent upon them for making food, right? That is built in to the female biology. It is a sacred thing every time a mama feeds a baby. We expand that image into God feeding us. Who made the mama? Who made the mama with the capability of feeding the baby? Who made the seed so that it would sprout and grow and bear food? Who made the animals so that they would reproduce and we could eat the animals? Everything ultimately goes back to God, right? Even our food. Yeah, we can go to, maybe I shouldn't list specific places where you go buy food. That might be considered to be an, an, an endorsement, right? I was going to mention places like, uh, let's see, Safeway and Ralph's, and we got some foofy kind of grocery stores now, um, Taco Bell, <laughs> McDonald's, right? No, 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 no. We, we'd use all the stuff that God has given us to use, okay? So what does Moses go on to say? God gave you food that you didn't know anything about, in order, this is the fascinating part, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, and then you're going to tell me what it means. In order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Talk to me about that. Yeah. What it's about, fundamentally, is not the physical stuff. It's your faith in God. It's your faith in God it's about God, therefore we are called to have faith in the God who provides it all, right? That's the fundamental thing that makes life happen. Good thought, good thought. Yeah, remember the manna would appear in the morning and, and then it would spoil, but it would come again in the morning, except on the Sabbath God would give them enough to last two days. Remember that piece of, am I remembering that right? These are the things that they put in Bible trivia exams. Um, but yeah, you look to the heavens from which your, your, your feeding comes, okay? Exactly. Tomorrow is not promised. Put your trust and faith in the Lord. Yeah, yeah. You could do worse than to think about that every day when you wake up, right? Right? Good, faithful, orthodox Jews will say, hey, I'll go have coffee with you tomorrow, the Lord willing, okay? In, in Christian... Arabic communities, the word is inshallah. You say that all the time, right? Inshallah. In the will of God. If it is in the will of God, I will do such and such, right? Remember Jesus said, do not swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Jesus wasn't talking about the bad language you learned on the playground in second grade. Jesus was talking about promising. That's what swearing is. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, blah, 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 blah? That is actually not a Christian exercise because Jesus himself said, don't swear. Why did he say that? Because when you swear something, you are making a commitment and a promise that you cannot make. I cannot promise you that I will be here five seconds from now. I hope I am too. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you are too. <laughs> Got a little mutual love going on here. This is good. Right? At any second, any one of us could fall down dead of a heart attack or a stroke or a meteorite could hit us or whatever. Right? Every single breath you take is a gift from God that is not guaranteed except by God. Therefore, we live by faith in God alone. Talk some more about this phrase, because this is the foundation of everything else we're going to talk about, right? In order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What else comes into your mind as we read that phrase? Yeah, we search for worldly things, okay, and that's not a bad thing to, to plant your crops and to, you know, sow your garments and things. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but the thing that's underneath that all is searching for God and hearing from God, listening to God, being in that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, go back up to obey the commandments so that you may live right? Not so that you may sit in your room and be bored because all the non-Christians are out having a good time and you're sitting in your room being bored, but so that you may truly live, follow the Word, and then all the words that proceed from out of that fundamental Word, beginning with the Ten Commandments, right? I am, the older I get, the more and more impressed I am with the Ten Commandments, right? If we are going to live, then the first commandment directed at us says, don't kill each other. That's a no-duh, isn't it, right? If you and I are going to live, we're going to agree, first of all, not to kill each other, and then we'll work out all the other issues after that, right? So if you're going to truly live, you search out the commandments of God. You search out the Word of God. Great, great. What else? What else? Yes, that's exactly right. All of the commandments uh, even the ones that we got twisted around and kind of carried away with and took into places they shouldn't go, the heart of them all is about how to love God and how to love neighbor, right? Now, of course, it gets more complicated as we live out. Sometimes it's difficult to figure out what's the most loving thing to do in a particular situation, and that's why we have to keep in touch with what God is saying, but that's absolutely from where it all comes. Yes, yes. It is written that man does not live by bread alone. Do you remember any other place in Scripture where this phrase occurs? Yes, when Jesus is wandering around for a long time in the desert, oh, now we have our attention, and the devil shows up and says, Jesus, you're hungry. You, Jesus, don't have to wait for God to provide the manna. You are God. You can take this rock and make some 12-grain bread. <laughs> Why not a little butter, you know, some jam or jelly? Go for it. And what does Jesus say? It's not about the bread. It's about the Word of God, right? Jesus' own life is in some sense a recapitulation of the life of Israel, right? Jesus is exiled for a while off in Egypt and comes back. Jesus wanders around in the desert for a while. All kinds of connections there that all tell us about our fundamental relationship with God. Okay, let's keep on going. I can get, we could go for hours just on this. We won't. Let's go to the next passage. 
John 1, 1 through 5 and 18. You might have heard some of this before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made Him known. Okay, you know this about the gospel according to John. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John. John is very different in some ways in its character. It is much more developed and finely adjusted and tuned in its theology, especially to express Christian theology in terms that uh, non-Jews will understand, meaning folks that are influenced by the Hellenistic or the Greek world. Because of all that, we think that the gospel according to John was not written down in final form until maybe around the year 90 or 100, quite some time after Jesus is gone. There's scholarly argument about whether or not the disciple John actually wrote this or maybe a follower of the disciple of John. When I say a scholarly argument, remember that the only reason people get to be scholars is so that they can argue with each other about things. The important thing is that John wrote a message of what he thought about Jesus, whether it was John the disciple or some other John. The church eventually said, this is really good stuff. It tells us truth. And what does John say to us? The prologue of John really isn't it. In some sense, those first 18 verses of the gospel according to John are a mini summary of the whole rest of the message of, of the gospel according to John. Okay? In the beginning was the Word. Let's take this apart again. What, what ideas and images pop up out of this for you? What just starts to, to get things shaking and stirring inside you? Yeah, in the beginning. Where else do we hear the words in the beginning in the Bible? In the beginning, right? John, whoever wrote John, I'll say John. When John wrote his story of Jesus, it was clear that he had read his Bible, and in his Bible it starts with Bereshith Bereshah, the Hebrew, in the beginning. And so now John and his story of Jesus is taking us back to the beginning of everything, okay? Before the beginning, before we began, we're talking about that which began us. In the beginning, that's big time stuff, yes. The first words of something are usually extremely important, right? And the first words that John chooses to use when he is trying to teach you and me about all the stuff we need to know is the word word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And a little bit later on, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Okay, that should tell us right there that word is an important word here. <laughs> In the Greek, it is the word logos, okay, from which we get lots of our words today, like logical, okay, the logic of something, the word. Let's go back to the Old Testament word, okay? Remember the Genesis story? The older I get, the more I understand how much flows out of those first few chapters of Genesis, too. What happens as God creates, how does God do it? How does God create everything? He speaks. He speaks. How many of you can create something by saying it? We can't create anything physical. We can, however, we can, however, create lots of stuff with the words that we speak. I could create pandemonium right now by telling you that I'm infected with the coronavirus and you all have it. I could create pandemonium by yelling fire, everybody get out of the building. I can create a warm and fuzzy feeling inside you by saying that you are the most beautiful creature I have ever laid eyes on. 
Or I can create other kinds of feelings by saying other things that I won't say because I don't want to create those feelings. It's like, why did God bother to make you? Right? Words have power. The Word of God has the power to speak everything into existence. That's pretty big-time speaking power, right? Now, that word, that same word, John is trying to figure out a way to take the Genesis Hebrew-Jewish understanding of the Word of God by which man lives and translate it into something that non-Jews, non-Bible readers will understand. And he hits on the idea of the logos, the Greek logos. Greek philosophy was actually very close in its understanding, close to the Hebrew understanding of the power of word. For the Greeks, the logos was the mind, the intelligence, the capability, the power, the incredible knowledge that was at the source and beginning of everything, right? Let's think about that a little bit. You had to be pretty smart to make the world, wouldn't you? You agree with me on that? Yeah, you got to be pretty smart to make the world. And not just smart, but to have the kind of smarts that leads to capability. It's smart and, 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 and mind and, and intelligence and understanding for both the Hebrew mindset and the Greek mindset, the Hellenistic mindset, was not just about knowing facts and figures. It was about being smart enough to be able to actually do something, Right? The smartest people in the world are the people who get something done. You can sit there and theorize all day long, but unless it issues forth in something happening, the theory doesn't make any difference to anybody. So that's what we're meaning by the power of the Word, okay? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Yeah, that's great. We're good with all that, right? And the Word became flesh. We have seen this Word. This is one of the reasons I'm big on Jesus, because whatever it is that started everything, that undergirds everything, and to which everything is going, that and Jesus are the same thing. I cannot understand anything that I've just been teaching you about what the Word actually is. You can't understand it either, really. None of us can comprehend that force, that power, that intelligence that is underneath and before and above and through and to all things. We can't. We can talk about it forever and we can begin to shape the size of it, but as we talk more and more, we begin to get more impressed with just how much we don't know about it. Right? But, there's my word, but... And this word, that thing, John says, the church says, is Jesus. That I can begin to get my arms wrapped around. How many of you know some other human beings? How many of you know some others that are, I'm not sure they are human, right? (laughs) Right? We know more about human beings than we do about God's being. We are a human being. We relate to other human beings. And in Jesus, we have a human being who also is God. And we begin then to comprehend God. What do you know about Jesus? Someone described for me the most impressive, the most stirring the most important things that we know about Jesus. What would you say about Jesus? If someone said, I know zip about Jesus, what would you say about Jesus? Jesus loves me, this I know. Right? Jesus loves me. That's the thing that I would want to start with. If Jesus loves me, and Jesus is the eternal logos of God, what does that say about God? Ergo, God loves me, okay? Now, this is all very, very, very standard, basic, classic, orthodox Christian theology that we tend to forget 
and that we also tend to discount somewhat because we don't realize how radical an idea it is in our time as well as in Jesus' time or any time to say that the ineffable, immeasurable, mysterious God of all things is in this human being. And in looking at the human being, we see God. Not everybody can say that. Not everybody believes that about Jesus. And not everybody can say that, but that's what we say. Isn't that amazing? Let's go forward a little bit. Let's go to Revelation. Let me find my Revelation passage. Here we go. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need brass or something playing as we do that, right? Big honking pipe organ, right? There's a, there's a popular song that comes out of this passage. Did you catch it? Yes, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, right? They are trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, right? Right? Now, let's go back and talk about the book of Revelation. It's not Revelations, Revelation or the Apocalypse, Around the same time that the gospel according to John is being written down, the book of Revelation is being written down, ostensibly by the same person, by John, okay? The tradition is that following Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus had said to John the disciple at the foot of the cross, take care of mom for me, John took Mary out of Jerusalem because it was too dangerous for them to be there and because later on, a couple of decades later, three decades later, Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. And they went to Ephesus. Some of you have been to Ephesus. You can go to supposedly the house where John and Mary lived in Ephesus. As time went on, John got in trouble because he was a Christian. John got in trouble with the, with the Roman authorities, and Ephesus was one of the major cities, one of the major seats of governmental power of Rome in that region. And so John was exiled to a small island called Patmos to the west of Ephesus, the west of modern-day Turkey out in the Aegean Sea, now a Greek island, the island of Patmos. Some of you have been there before. Okay, While he was on this rocky, barren desert island with a whole bunch of other convicts and political exiles, he has a vision. Jesus comes to him and says, I got a message that you're going to give to the churches. During this period of history, the emperor Diocletian, or was it Domitian? I always get the D guys mixed up. I say it right here. Ba, 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 ba. Domitian, 81 to 96. Domitian among others, was one of the worst of the emperors in terms of their persecution of the Christians, okay? Christians are being persecuted. So the word of Jesus comes to John to spread around the churches, and specifically seven churches that are all located in western Turkey, not far from where Ephesus actually is. And that word is a word of encouragement, a word that teaches the people that God is going to make everything right. 
that regardless of the persecution, regardless of the fact that they are losing their businesses, regardless of the fact that their families are being shunned from society, regardless of the fact that some of them are being hauled in front of a statue of the emperor and made to proclaim the emperor is God and they can't do it, they say, no, the emperor is not God, only God is God, Jesus is Lord, and therefore they're executed. In the midst of that kind of a context, we have John's message, the revelation. It speaks to us from out of a particular form of of writing that has its roots back in Jewish history. It's called the apocalyptic form, okay? It is a form of writing that uses images and symbols and all kinds of fantastic wild things to disguise what is actually being said. And so you have beasts with horns and tons of eyes and wild and crazy things going on as a way of describing political, religious, social reality of that day. But you don't want people to know you're saying that. So you put it in those forms and then people who are in the know, people who are taught what the sign language, what the imagery means, will understand what is being said. Ultimately, the book of Revelation is not a book that is meant to tell you and me about the end of the world today. It might be coming with a coronavirus. Who knows? Lots of people have made lots of money and written tons of books, especially in our lifetime and in other periods of Christian history, saying that Revelation clearly teaches that Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist, and that Russia is going to rise up and destroy the whole world. That was the popular interpretation when I was alive. After Henry Kissinger, then became Mikhail Gorbachev, who had the mark of the beast on his head. Poor guy was a Christian. Did you realize that? At any rate, I have no patience whatsoever with anyone who takes Revelation and tries to turn it into something that's going to scare you into loving God. I have no patience with anyone who will disregard all of Christian history when we have tried to make Revelation apply to our day and time and specific events and people. Revelation did apply to specific events and people in its own day because it was written for people in that day. And at the end of the day, Revelation has exactly one message. And that message is God wins. Thank you. Years ago now, we did an eight-week study on the book of Revelation. And that's really all that Revelation says, God wins. Now, lots comes out of that, okay? If God wins, then what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do about the fact that God wins? Get on his side. side. (laughs) Amen. That's what Revelation says. Now, obviously, there's a ton more in it, but that's the fundamental message. God wins... And so get on his side and stay on his side, even though you might lose your life today. There's none of us, I won't say this for certain, because remember, we can't say anything for certain, except that God alone is certain. There's none of us today who are going to be forced to choose between life and death because of our faith. There might be, but probably not. That's the situation in context. Look at what John says. We have this amazing image. The heavens are opened. We see into heaven, right? And there's the white horse with the rider called faithful and true. He's righteous. He judges. He makes war. Eyes like a flame of fire died in. This is an impressive character. This is one impressive character. Who is it? Who is this rider on the white horse? This is the word of God right? He has a name, verse 12, he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself, meaning that we cannot fully describe and understand and know who this is, and yet we do know who this is. There's that paradox of faith. He is the Word of God. Who did John just say is the Word of God? Jesus. This is Christus Victor, Christ victorious right? The Christ who humbled himself and was executed by the Romans is the same Christ who one day will set everything right again. 
There's a lot of imagery in here that a lot of modern-day wussy Christians don't like. They don't like the idea of God wiping out God's enemies, okay? I don't like the idea of God wiping out people, but I do like the idea of God wiping out anything that's going to destroy God's plan for us. In that day, it was put in terms of God wiping out enemies, wiping out people. Millions die, okay? We don't need to kill people, but we do need to kill evil. We do need to kill death. We do need, do need to kill whatever in us and in others and in society takes us away from God because that actually is death, right? Wouldn't you like to kill death itself? That's part of the Christian methods. Jesus killed death. Ooh, how do you do that? I don't know how. Jesus did it, thank God, right? This is the, that writer and this is the Word of God. Okay, go back to what we know about the word in Genesis. The word creates everything. Okay, this word is the word by which we live. What's the opposite of living? Dying. You either live by the word or you die. It's a very clear-cut distinction as far as the Scripture is concerned, right? This word is the word that we know in Jesus. If you want to know how it's done, if you want to know who it is, if you want to know everything about it, you, you, God has told you everything you need to know. Not everything, but everything that you need to know in Jesus. And this same word that made everything at the beginning, that sustained the people in the wilderness, that appeared in Jesus Christ, will appear again. It still is alive and active in the world, and it will put everything back together again. That's the end of the story. I've just given you Cliff's notes on the Bible. <laughs> Did you catch that? I didn't realize I was going to do that. People say, what is the Bible about? God made everything. It got all screwed up. God kept it going. God saved it. God is going to put it all back together again. What's that? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Isn't that amazing? All by the word. Okay, so let's answer a couple of questions for me. Now that you know all this stuff, and most of you have known most of this stuff before, but it's good to remember it all, isn't it? There's that remember again. What are you going to do with that? What do you do with the fact that the word of God is available to you? Share it. Good idea. Live by it. Learn it. Learn it. Wow. Wow. Somebody yesterday, where, where were we in that conversation? Where were we having the conversation where somebody had just gotten an email advertisement for a new Bible program that said, we'll send you free Bible verses every day? Was it Kingdom Academy? Yeah. And was it you that got that? Oh, it was Peggy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. This happened less than 12 hours ago, and I've already forgotten it. Um, no, one of the members of this group got on her phone as we were talking there, this little advertisement thing. You get free Bible verses every day. What a stupid thing is that to say? <laughs> I, do, your Bible's right here, right? Now, you paid for the Bible, but after that, all the verses in it are free, aren't they? They were free before you bought it. Yeah, what an amazing idea, right? Now, obviously, the program is trying to say, we will send you a scripture passage every day on your phone because you're certainly not ever going to open your Bible, but you will look at your phone 400,000 times a day, whatever that is, right? The Word of God, the Word written, okay? The Word written is what we say the Bible is, is available to you. It introduces you to the Word. There's a difference between the written Word of God and the Word of God that is comprehended and expressed in Jesus. We read the Word so that we can meet the Word. They're not identical things. The Bible is not God, but it's the written Word that introduces us to God and in the study of it, we meet it itself. We meet God. We meet Jesus. And it's free. <laughs> that just got me excited. I don't know. <laughs> what else do you do with the Word? Believe it. 
Obey it. Have faith. Pray it. Yes, pray it. That's why God gave us the Psalms especially. None of us know how to pray. What's the first prayer that you learned? God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Amen. Or yea, God, or whatever, right? We're all taught prayer. You have to be taught how to talk to God. And that's what the Psalms are, in some sense, is a way that teaches us how to talk to God. Yeah. How many of you dwell with the Word of God? How many of you take one word for free (laughs) from the Bible today and just let it marinate in you for a while? Have you ever done that? Usually we like to take, you know, some of the big important words, faith, hope, love, peace, patience, kindness, understanding, righteousness. I mean, pick, pick a word. Think about that. Write that word on a sticky note. Put it on your head. Oh, wait, that's a phylactery. That's what the, that's what the Jews did, remember? Took the word and you wore it physically on your body so you couldn't escape it because you live by it. I don't know, it's fun stuff. What else would you do with it? There we are. Yes, listen to it. The church says that God speaks through the written word. As we read it, as we dwell with it, as we listen to it, as we focus on it through the teaching, through the preaching, through the conversation with others about it. That is one of the fundamental exercises of of those who follow Jesus is to do what Jesus did, and Jesus was always reading the Bible. He even quoted it to the devil. Maybe someday one of you will get a chance to quote the Bible to the devil. You hope not. (laughs) But if you ever need to, you need to know something in the Bible to quote it to the devil. (laughs) Right? The devil knows the Bible really well. Did you know that? Yeah. Fascinating. Any other words that are in you? Yes. Sing. Yes, yes. Because when we set words to music, we remember them, okay? We were talking about the words to Gilligan's Island the other day, right? There we go. Yes. Yeah, you can sing Amazing Grace to that tune. Did you know that? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. This is totally useless information, Nikki, but I love it. (laughs) Right? Yeah. We sing it. We say it together. We study it. We read it. We dwell with it. And no matter how old you get to be, there's some really old people in here, and they've told me these things, right? No matter how old you get to be, it never loses its power and its vitality to connect you to life today. Remember. Let's pray. God, thank you for a good time. Thank you for a good time with good things and good people and the highest good that is you. Help us to live by that word today for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you all.